remain standing if you would and take your Bibles and turn to the book of Mark. Mark chapter 11. <coughs> Hear now the word of God. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Uh, say, The Lord has need of it, and will send it back immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing, untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. You may be seated. Let's go before the Lord and seek his guidance before we look at his word this morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, so much that we could come into your presence today. You are a mighty, great, and awesome God. Lord, you are, and your kingdom is like upside down and backwards and different than the way that we naturally think. Lord, the words that we have before us today are, are words of life. And we just pray that you would give us ears to hear these things. Lord, help us to listen carefully. Lord, we pray for your Holy Spirit to work in our hearts that we would consider deeply the things that you give to us today. That we might know Jesus as he is, not as we come with oftentimes our preconceived ideas. We thank you, Lord, and, and pray these things in your name. Amen. Well, this week I, I came across an article entitled, Why is there no wrestling? Why is there no wrestling? In other words, it's the idea of why is there no wrestling in prayer in the church today? As a matter of fact, I've posted that article on our church website in the resource section if you want to read that for yourself later. But the article starts out, and it says, it is a question worth pondering as to whether there is much serious prayer being offered up in our busy age. There is undoubtedly a welter of other things being attempted. And, and I want you to, as you hear me finish reading from this article, I want you to be thinking about what you've seen on social media over the past year with regards to politics or social issues or even what's going on in our own denomination and the politics and the policies and things. Think about the conversations you've had at work or over the fence with your neighbors or with family members or whatever, okay? He says there is undoubtedly a welter of other things being attempted. 
files of papers are being prepared on a host of topics, or you could say blog posts, I guess. Mem uh, memoranda by the score are recorded, statistics are noted, committees are formed and then disbanded, agendas are drawn up and discussed, ideas are floated and debated, we've definitely seen that, proposals are offered and turned this way and then that. He says, but in the face of the massive onslaught of secular and spiritual forces hostile to the gospel of Christ, there appears to be little agonizing prayer. Perhaps it's time to ask ourselves if this is why nothing seems to get any better. And I think that's something that we need to consider. I mean, I think it's so easy for us to be frustrated with inflation and and, and look to our political leaders or be uh, upset with uh, our employers or maybe even upset with the church and think that the problem is there. Well, the author goes on and he sort of lays out maybe a number of reasons why maybe we don't agonize in prayer. But one of the things he says later in the article is he said, we shall probably seldom if ever pray in the manner of the saints of the Bible if we are not full of the knowledge of scriptures. If we're not full of the knowledge of scriptures. If we don't know the promises of God, we're not going to wrestle with God, you know, pleading with Him to answer these things. And, and I would suggest to you, I might even add, if I could, not necessarily that this is in the article, but also it is maybe that we don't know God as we think we know Him. We may know Him to a certain degree, but we may not really truly grasp the depth and the breadth of who God is. And so we expect way too little of God. And we don't agonize in prayer. You know, we call Jesus Savior and Lord. And He is our Savior. He is the one who saved us from eternal damnation through His life and His death and His resurrection. He is our Lord. He's the King of kings. He's the God-man who is the ruler over the heavens of the earth. And, and even as we look at our text today, you know, in what is oftentimes called Palm Sunday or the triumphal entry, you know, we see here on this Sunday before Jesus' death, the people crying out, Hosanna! And we think of that as a word of praise. And there is a sense in which the way that the gospel writers put this forth, the people are exalting Jesus and they are praising Him. But literally that word means save us. And so they're saying, save us, save us. And so they're referring to Jesus as Savior. They may not have understood what that meant, and I think they had a different idea, but they were looking to him to be the Savior. And then they call to him as the one who comes in the name of the Lord, and as the one who is bringing the kingdom of David. And these are all titles of authority and of kingship. And so they're referring to him as Lord. And so the people's praises to Jesus essentially acknowledge him as Savior and Lord, which is very fitting. And yet back then, just like today, people can utter these words without really understanding them. Today, calling Jesus our Lord and Savior can really become cliche. We can utter those words in vain because we really don't understand their importance and, and who it is. But God wants us to understand. Jesus uh, wants us to not only confess who He is, but to understand what that confession means. Not only in our prayer, but in all of our lives and in everything that we do. And throughout the Gospel of Mark, as we've been looking at it over this last year, 
you know, we've been confronted with these three questions. Who is Jesus? What did he come to do? And what does it mean to follow him? He wants us to understand who he is and what that means for our lives as his disciples. And so today we're going to look at Christ as the king. Christ is the Messiah. But before we do that, I, I want us to just sort of uh, pull together all of the things that we've been studying in Mark to understand the context of this morning on Palm Sunday. Because this is something that we've heard so much, even from the time we were little, little, little kids in Sunday school, we've heard this thing that we just sort of take this event and isolate it from everything else that's going on. But I want us to see what's sort of, sort of all behind this as we come to this event. You know, we need to understand that, that Mark is writing to Christians who are most likely in Rome. And, and if that is true, then these are Christians who are being persecuted for their faith. I mean, these are Christians who are meeting under the city in the catacombs in the graveyard to have a worship service because they don't want anybody to know that they are Christians. Okay, because it will cost them their life. And Mark is writing to this band of believers and he says, let me show you who your Savior is. He is the King. And, and he lays out a picture of who Jesus is in the first eight chapters of his gospel that is phenomenal. That Jesus is not some wimpy king, not some self-serving king. He is a mighty, glorious, gracious God. He is the one who has rule and power over illness and over the devil and over creation and over sin. And so he says, you want to know who Jesus is? This is who he is. But then he goes on in chapters 9 through 16 and he really focuses on the cross. And he talks about Christ's mission. That as king he comes to, to rule, yes, but he also comes to die. That he could purchase a people for himself. So why did Jesus come? What did he come to do or to accomplish? He came to die. And that's where we get the series, the title to the series that, of this book of uh, Mark. And that is the king's cross. Because Jesus is both king, but he is the king that is going to the cross. And for the last several chapters, Mark has been, you know, focusing our direction towards Jesus' mission. Towards what he came to do. And, and several times Jesus has said, I have come to suffer, I have come to die, and I have come to raise, be raised again from the dead. But it's not until chapter 10, verse 33, that Jesus says, we're going up to Jerusalem now. He's telling them where they're going. Now, this is exciting for the disciples because they're thinking that Jesus is going to be an earthly ruler, right? He's going to overthrow the Romans, and so this, this can be pretty exciting. So they're going to Jerusalem, but not just at any point in time. They are going during the Passover. It's a very specific time because at the time of the Passover, all these Jews from all the surrounding areas come to Jerusalem. That poor little town just swells with people as so many people come but you have to remember where has jesus been doing his ministry in all these outlying areas he's been in galilee and all over the place and so those people that come to jerusalem for the passover have most likely heard of jesus as a matter of fact it's likely that they've heard him teach some of them may have had jesus heal them or cast out demons or do some other miracle in their life and so as he's riding into Jerusalem on this donkey they know Jesus they know what's going on so 
Jesus is at the end of a journey which began, began some nine months before and where he's been purposely sort of zigzagging across Galilee and Samaria and uh, uh, Perea and, and even Judea. And, and then finally, you know, he's, he's in all that traveling, he's covered like 35 different localities. And, and so then he is now coming to where he's coming into to Jerusalem. But before he gets to Jerusalem, he makes one more stop at the base of the mountain in a town called Jericho. And there he heals the blind man Bartimaeus in Jericho. And as a matter of fact, Mark tells us that Bartimaeus is with him, that he followed Jesus uh, after he healed him. And so now Jesus with his disciples is back in Bethany on the outskirts of Jerusalem. And you can just imagine the expectations that people have for Jesus. And not only that, but in John chapter 11, we read that Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead. And, and so uh, they are really excited and pumped about that. Not the religious leaders, but the people seem to be. As a matter of fact, the religious leaders not only want to kill Jesus, John tells us, but also they want to kill Lazarus because he has evidence of the power that Jesus Christ has, has demonstrated. And so you have their sort of an unparalleled excitement and attention as Jesus is coming into Jerusalem. The Passover is just a few days away. And could you imagine what the people were asking? They're probably wondering, would Jesus make his move? If so, when? And what would the authorities do as Jesus sought to take the throne and take control as the Messiah? And as that pressure mounted, the Lord indeed took definite action. And I want us to look at two things this morning. Uh, very simply, first of all, the king that Christ is. I want us to look at the king that Christ is. And then second of all, I want us to look at the king that Christ is not. The king that Christ is and the king that he is not. First of all, the king that he is. As Christ is entering into Jerusalem, he enters in a number of ways. First of all, he enters publicly and possessing authority. He comes publicly and possessing authority. You see, Jesus was purposefully going public, which is very different than what he had done in all of his previous ministry. Never before he had he'd done anything to promote himself publicly. As a matter of fact, he had always done the opposite. He had always, you know, uh, intentionally uh, sort of sought to stay out of the spotlight. He traveled from place to place and stuff, and when the crowds would gather, sometimes he would pull away from them. But now Jesus intentionally enters Jerusalem in a very public manner. And the thing that makes the difference is his time had now come. This is the last week of his life. At the end of this week, he will go to the cross and he will die for his people. But what's so ever clear in this passage is not only that Jesus is public, but also that he is orchestrating everything that is taking place. Everything that we see, he is orchestrating right from the start even as they make their final descent and ascent into Jerusalem, Jesus puts the plan of redemption into action. And, and I want you to see in Mark's account, a large portion of these eight verses, actually the first seven verses of this, over half of this text, is really about the details. And Jesus wants us to see that everything that he is doing, he has control over. He orders the two disciples 
to get a colt, a young donkey that's never been ridden, and he tells them where to find the donkey, and he tells them how to respond. If somebody asks them a question about why they're taking them, and of course they do, and so Jesus says, if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and we'll send it back here immediately. This event was all part of God's plan, and Jesus Christ is in control. And we need to remember that. Uh, even in our lives, that Jesus is still sovereignly in control of his creation, including his church and his people. And even when we don't understand, brothers and sisters, what Christ is doing, we can rest assured that he is in control. I don't know what you're facing this morning. I don't know the things that you were enduring and the difficulties that you were having. But I want you to know that Christ is king. Christ is king. But he enters Jerusalem also humbly as well. Notice that Jesus rides in on a colt, on a young donkey. Now that to us doesn't seem very prestigious, doesn't seem very kingly of him to ride on a donkey. We would think of this great stallion, you know, and thinking that whatever a king rides, that sort of symbolizes his strength and his glory. But here Jesus is humbly riding on a donkey. Now, Mark doesn't point this out, but this is really in fulfillment of Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Um, Zechariah 9 prophesied of the coming Messiah, specifically where the Messiah would come riding on a donkey. And in that prophecy, it describes this riding on a donkey as, as lowly or as humble. Now, don't uh, misunderstand and think that humble or lowly means weak or incompetent. Jesus is not a weak or an incompetent ruler, but it's really to emphasize how he has come to bring peace. He has come to bring peace. If you look at Zechariah chapter 9, it really marks a new section in the book of Zechariah that pertains to God's sovereignty over the nations, giving hope to the captive Israelites because they were at the mercy of the nations around them. In verses 1 through 7 of Zechariah chapter 9, there is really a judgment oracle against the pagan nations who have continually threatened Israel's existence. And yet God promises to protect his people, Israel, from the surrounding nations. And so he says in verse 9, he continues this theme of a secure and sovereign rule. He goes, Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion, See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. You see, Zechariah shows us that Jesus has come to destroy Israel's enemy. Uh, but when Jesus came, he didn't come to destroy Rome. He came to destroy sin and death and, and lead his people out of spiritual exile. And so by coming on a donkey, Jesus is symbolically declares that the battle has initially been won and a time of peace has arrived. Jesus came peacefully, bringing peace, shalom to a war-torn world. Um, and this is a theme throughout the scriptures. And we're not going to take time to look at all the, the themes of peace. But let me just read a few very familiar verses to you to sort of tie this all together. 750 years earlier, Isaiah had prophesied that the Messiah would come as the Prince of Peace. Uh, when Jesus was born, the, what did the angels announce? On earth, peace 
to men on whom his favor rests. And now he rides into Jerusalem upon an animal of peace. Jesus told his disciples in John 14, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I don't give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. You see, another place Jesus says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. So you have to understand that Jesus is unlike any other king who ever lived. How unlike he is from the secular rulers that, that we might know about, the Alexanders and the Napoleons and the Marcos, who came in great power with uh, uh, you know, war horses and they're riding proudly through the gates and they're dragging their, their enemies behind them, the kings and the other officials. But Jesus slowly, purposefully came riding the colt of a donkey. Now, you know, not only did God's people then need to hear that, but we need to hear this today. We live in a world that seems anything but peaceful, right? You know, I think the older you are, the, the more you see the unrest in our world today. That's not to say that if you're young, you don't see the unrest. But, you know, it does seem like there's been a shift in our world and in the things that are they're going on. And we're continually, I think, looking for... Uh, actions. We're looking for leaders who will step up and bring some kind of stability to the culture in which we live and the world in which we live. But brothers and sisters, we need to be reminded that initially the battle has been won and a time of peace has arrived. Jesus, the King, has come. And we cannot look to politics to try to make everything right. We cannot look to politicians. We can't look to economists to try to stabilize everything that is going on. We cannot look to all the institutions to somehow make things right in our world. The only place that we will find peace is in the Lord Jesus Christ as we come to Him. It doesn't mean that the world will change and it will become less of a, a crazy place to live. But for his people, as we look to him and we rest in him, and we do trust in those promises that he has given us in his word, we can have an inner peace that this world cannot touch, a stability, a rock that we are anchored to that gives us great comfort. So Jesus enters humbly, but he also enters triumphantly. Uh, we see this in a, a number of ways. Uh, in verse 2, Jesus specifically says that the disciples will find a colt that no one has ever sat upon. Now you may think, well, why does that show his triumphal glory? Well, I, I think one reason, uh, this is sort of maybe uh, implied just through logic if you think about it, but uh, a colt of a donkey is like the colt of a horse. You know, a horse has to be broken before you can ride it. You know, and it's the same way with the donkey. If you sat on a donkey that was not broken, well, once you picked yourself up off the ground and got back <laughs> on the donkey again, you know, but Jesus sits on this donkey and there's peace. 
the donkey takes him where he needs to go, which would suggest a miracle over nature, that things did not happen as we would think that they would. But the text doesn't say, you know, he was constantly being bucked off, but he would, you know, it doesn't. It's just he rides into the city. We just sort of take that for granted. But there's actually a greater significance to this fact that this was a cult that was never used. You see, in the Old Testament, there are several references to God making use of things that have never been used before, uh, and they were to be used for a holy task. One example is in Numbers chapter 19, where there's a sacrifice of a red heifer that's described. And that heifer had to be an unblemished animal that had never had a yoke put upon it. Because, see, it was to be used as for holy use. And so it couldn't have been used for a common use and then used for a holy use. It had to be something that was brand new. And it's the same way in 1 Samuel 6 when the Philistines were returning the Ark of the Covenant. Remember they stole the Ark of the Covenant? They thought that would be really a great idea until they started getting all these tumors and everything else. And they're like, we need to get this Ark back to the Israelites. And so the priest, the Philistine priest, instructed that the Ark be moved with new carts and with cows that have never had a yoke upon them. You see, even the Gentile priest understood the concept here that using something new that had never been used before was a way to show that it is being used for a sacred and a holy purpose. And as Jesus rides in on this unused, unridden cult, he was showing that, that this had been set aside for a holy task, a holy purpose that Jesus was embarking on. Um, this was a holy mission that Christ was doing. And not only that, but also just very quickly it talks about how there's the unbinding or the untying of the cult as well which is a reference to Genesis 49 verses 10 and 11 um, which is a, a passage where the patriarch Jacob is blessing his sons and he blesses his son Judah with a rather unusual prophecy the prophecy included the fact that the scepter would never depart from Jesus now I know you kids from preschooler kids you know what a scepter is right because you made one in Sunday school, right? As you were talking about Esther, right? I, I saw all of them a couple of weeks ago all over the church. You guys were like sword fighting with them. But anyway, it's just, you know what a scepter is. It's that, that staff that the king would, would hold out. And it said the prophecy included the fact that the scepter would never depart from Judah until it comes to the one it rightly belongs to. And if you remember, both David, King David, and Jesus are descendants of the tribe of Judah. And then Jacob's prophecy in verse 40, or chapter 49 then talks about the binding of a young donkey to a vine. And the passage uh, in Mark, uh, it talks about how that will be untied. And it was seen as a messianic prophecy. So there's these references to Christ in his greatness of who he is. But we also see that as the people who put the garments on the donkey, the disciples put the garments on the donkey, and the people lay out their cloaks before Jesus and, and the branches before them, almost like they're laying out the red carpet is how we might look at it. But, but you know, even in the Old Testament, we see precedence to that. We see when Jehu was made king, we read that they hurried and took their cloaks and spread them under him on the bare steps. And then they blew the trumpet and shouted, Jehu is the king. So there's more than just the fact that they're laying out the red carpet. They recognized that Christ was the Messiah. And then 
There's more references to Psalm 118, but I know we've already I've already preached on that just a couple of weeks ago on, on Easter Sunday or Palm Sunday, excuse me. Uh, I preached on Psalm 18 where there was sort of this progression that was coming into Jerusalem to the temple and how Christ fulfilled that as well. And so you see Christ in all his majesty. You see Christ in his intentional purpose as he is controlling all things. You see Christ who comes humbly uh, bringing peace. So he is that kind of king. But the kind of king that he is not is, he is not an earthly king. Jesus knows his mission is about suffering first and then glory. And he knows that he's on a rescue mission that will lead to his death. But so many at that time were looking for an eminent, earthly, and political leader. Many were assuming that the Messiah would come to bring freedom from the Romans. And, and I think at verse 10, that's why they say, Blessed is the kingdom of our father David. They saw him as one who would rule over Israel, much like David did in the glory days of Israel. And so Jesus has been very guarded to sort of share what his true identity is and what his true mission is because he knew that it would not line up with the people. But now he's beginning to make it known all the more. And the people who have the wrong understanding of Jesus' kingdom might not be so praiseworthy when they understand what Jesus truly came to do. When they realize that the enemy is not the Romans but themselves and their life of sin. When they realize that Jesus came first and foremost to conquer the sin in their lives. The sin that lives in rebellion to the kingdom of God. It's so much easier to think that the enemy is out there. And God says, no, our enemy is within us. And the old man and, 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 and the flesh and the sin, the old nature that is in there. But Christ has come to redeem us and to set us free. And Jesus knew that not so many people would be happy about that. And, and we know that even the disciples didn't get it. You know, they saw everything. John tells us that uh, the disciples saw all that Jesus did, but it wasn't until after his resurrection that they really came to understand who he was. So we can understand where people are. But I think, is that still true today? Do people come to Jesus maybe with an idea that somehow Jesus is going to make my life better? Jesus is going to make my life easier. Jesus is maybe going to give me more success or he's going to give me more wealth. And, and there is a sense in which following God and following his word, you know, God does protect us in our lives. He protects us from things that the world says is okay, but that hollows out our soul and causes us to be hollow and empty. But there's also very difficult things that we go through even in the Christian life because God loves us and he wants to discipline us and lead us and direct us and change us and to make us over into the image of his son. And so he takes us in those difficult times. But I just wonder how many profess faith in Jesus, but then when they see who Jesus really is, they're not so happy. They maybe walk away. And I think we have to ask ourselves, what are we looking for? Where are you looking for help and salvation? Are you looking to Jesus? Or are you looking to things of the world to somehow make your life better and more meaningful? But also I think we've got to ask ourselves, what kind of help are we looking for? 
Jesus came to deliver his people from their enemies. And many see Jesus, though, as simply just an add-on to their life, so somehow they might get a benefit. I mean, the people here saw Jesus as merely a prophet, you know, someone who would maybe say something for the Lord that, that would benefit them. Um, but that's not who Jesus Christ is. He has come to deliver us, to set us free. And I think it's interesting that you can tell that Christ is not an earthly king, especially as you read Mark's uh, account of the triumphal entry. Because after the people are shouting Hosanna and praises to God, verse 11 says, And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. It's like, just like that, it's over. Now, uh, as, it, as Jesus comes to the temple, there's, there's more that, that's taking place than what Mark has, has, has told us. You know, we see in, in other places, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But it's interesting and it's, it's striking that Jesus went to the temple as opposed to the palace. If he was an earthly king, he would have gone to take the throne. He would have gone to, to take the crown upon himself. But he was fulfilling another purpose. Uh, to understand that, we need to know what Malachi 3.1 says, which we looked at when we first started our study in Mark. Malachi 3.1 says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And we know that uh, God fulfilled that in John the Baptist. But then uh, the prophecy goes on in Malachi 3 and says, And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So once the messenger comes, the Messiah's appearance is inevitable. And Mark points to the fact that Christ coming to the temple is the fulfillment of that. And once Jesus arrives in the temple, things begin to die down pretty quickly. Like I said, in Matthew 21, we read that Jesus healed a few people. Uh, there were some children there crying, Hosanna to the son of David, and some of the religious leaders got upset about that. But overall, Jesus went into the temple, and then he just went home. And isn't it interesting that, that Mark 11.1 1 opens with Christ coming in this huge crowd. All of Jerusalem was with Jesus. And yet, as he leaves at the end of that day, it's only him and the twelve that leave. But we will see throughout the week the kind of king that Jesus Christ really is. And there, you may be here this morning and you may have had some disillusionment with the church or maybe even with Jesus himself. Or maybe you have friends that have been deluded. And, and I want to suggest to you that it could be that maybe they didn't understand who Christ really is. That maybe they had a perception of, of who God is and what salvation meant. And they started following Christ, but then when he was something different than what they thought, then they sort of walked away from the church or they walked away from Christ. And I want to encourage you, if you have friends like that, or if that's where you're at, to consider again who Jesus is. Pray for your friends. Don't give up on them. Continue to, to share with them who Christ is. Because I think in one sense, 
we're, we're sort of being challenged this morning as we look at this text. How do you see Christ? Do you see Christ as someone who's here to fulfill and enrich your life or establish his rule on earth beginning with you in your heart and in your life, setting you free from that which controls and drives you in ways that are contrary to him? He loves you. He wants to set you free. Not just merely in an earthly way, but he wants you to set you free. He is the true king of Israel. Amen? Amen. Let's bow our heads this morning as we um, consider these words that we have heard this morning. so much that you have given us your word and I pray Lord that we would see and understand Jesus for who he truly is Lord we have looked at who he is in the book of Mark but Lord even as we consider where Christ is today seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty ruling over all things he no less controls all the events of the things that are going on, his sovereign care and oversight. And Lord, we come to you as people who have been tempted to worry and to fret, who get so frustrated with the things that are going on in our lives. Maybe, Lord, we've even been so godless to, to say unkind words to other people and get upset with them when they don't agree with, with where we are and in maybe our political views or, or other things. God, we ask for your forgiveness, for lowering our view to the arena of the world. And we pray this morning that you might lift our eyes upon Jesus and that we might behold him in his glory to see who he is as the king who rules over all. May we be people who are once again filled with hope, a people who have peace because Lord we don't have to try to control or manipulate the circumstances of our lives instead we can rest in the one who already does that knowing that all that he does while we don't understand it while it may be upside down and backwards from the way that we do things that we know that Jesus does all things well help us to know that and to rest and to walk in that this week we pray in your name. Amen.